This evening we've been looking at the subject of sober-mindedness over the last uh, three Sundays in January when I've preached. We had one Sunday with a missionary report, but uh, again, this is a, a pattern we've kind of followed over the years as we begin a new year, taking advantage of the time that people are already thinking about uh, how the new year will go and what their commitments will be and uh, how they want their lives to change, to be better, even spiritually. And so we're looking at this subject of sober-mindedness. We've defined it uh, several times. It means essentially living this life with a view of eternity and to eternity with a knowledge that this world is not all that there is, to see all of life with reference to God and the judgment to come. It speaks, sober-mindedness speaks of both alertness and a realism, that is seeing the world as it really is from God's perspective with respect to how we understand it all. Peter, as we noted in this series, we're in 1 Peter, uh, his first letter where he uses this word in the Greek uh, three specific times, and that's what we're looking at. Uh, it's a, a word that's translated as sober-mindedness here. There are, again, other words that are translated for that, uh, but we're looking at these three. And as we do so, it makes sense. It makes sense, as we've seen in our first study, that this great change that God brings about in the Christian life or in the new convert, uh, it really is a substantive change in the person who is transferred, the Bible says, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. That person is called a new creation. There's an old man that still exists because of the remnant of sin that remains, and there's a new man created in Christ Jesus and made more and more like Jesus, his image in holiness and righteousness of life. The mind, the will, the emotions are all changed. They're different because of this great transformative work of God. In chapter 10 of our confession, we read these words briefly with respect to effectual call, that what God does is enlighten their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God. Paul says to the Corinthians that the natural man does not understand, cannot grasp the things of the spirit. But in conversion, in this call, this effectual call, God enlightens our minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God. Our larger catechism, sort of fleshing that out a little, says that effectual calling is the work of God's almighty power and grace, whereby out of his free and special love to his elect and from nothing in them, moving him thereunto, he doth in his accepted time invite and draw them to Jesus Christ by his word and spirit. And here's the language again, savingly enlightening their minds, renewing and powerfully determining their, will, their wills, so as they, although in themselves dead in sin, are hereby made willing and able freely to answer his call and to accept and embrace the grace offered and conveyed therein. So this idea that our minds are changed is related to what we're talking about with sober-mindedness. It is at the very beginning of the Christian life. It's one of the most fundamental changes that take place 
is the way we think as Christians, the way we look at the world, the way we look at ourselves, the way we look at God. Sober-mindedness is one of the marks of that new way of thinking, that enlightening of the mind. And Peter, we noted in these three places in his first letter, talks about this idea of sober-mindedness and how it relates to three very, very important areas of the Christian life. In 1 Peter 1.13, he speaks of sober-mindedness with relationship to the pursuit of holiness and the hope that is ours in Christ. In 1 Peter 4.7, he speaks of sober-mindedness as it relates to our prayers. And it's for the sake of our prayers that he calls us to be sober-minded, not only as we think about this world and then pray and bring our needs to God, but what we pray for is also, I think, in view there. And then in 1 Peter 5.8, where we are tonight, he speaks of sober-mindedness with respect to our being watchful, of our enemy, the devil, who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour or destroy. It's there that we turn our attention tonight, and I'll ask that you stand. Page 1206 in the Pew Bible, you'll find 1 Peter chapter 5. We'll read the context of this. That is 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 11. This is God's word. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. All flesh is as the grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flowers, they always fade. But the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father, we are so thankful tonight to gather here again in this place, and now to come before your throne to hear, we trust, the very words of Christ, as this is the word of Christ to us. Uh, may your preacher be found faithful in communicating these things. May your spirit do his work in our hearts and minds, and all to the end that you would receive all glory, and that we, your people, would be conformed more and more in mind and will, emotions, in every part of our being. In that new man, conformed to the image of Christ, we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Our text tonight is 
found, I believe, in a very important context. So we're going to look really at verses 6 through 9 and just touch on some of the other verses that come after that through verse 11. But our focus, of course, really is on verse 8, be sober-minded and be watchful. But notice in verses 6 and 7, I think it is important to note these things. As Peter writes to these believers, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. We saw that in James as well. We see it here uh, in Peter, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. It's not our focus tonight, but it is worth noting the contrast between verses 6 and 7 and verse, verses 8 and 9. In verses 6 and 7, Peter assures his readers that God indeed does care for his own. He does care for our needs, and he does want us to cast all our cares or anxieties, as the ESV translates it here, to cast them all upon him because he cares for us. I've always understood that verse to mean a challenge, if you will, that go ahead, give God a try, if you will. I'm not being facetious, I'm being serious, that I think Peter is saying, listen, go ahead, cast all your cares on him and see if he will not demonstrate that as you do that, you will understand and know and experience how much he really cares for you. Now, of course, Paul makes that argument in Romans when he says, if God did not spare his own son, how much will he not with him give us all things, right? That's the caring of God for his people. If he did not withhold his son from the worst of the judgments that any person could ever endure, suffering and dying in our place for our sake, how much more will he give us everything that we have need of? How much more will he not demonstrate day after day that he cares for us? Such care, such knowledge of such care, surely puts our hearts at peace and rest. However, and I think this is the connection, it ought not to lead to apathy or laziness with regard to our great enemy. Yes, God does indeed care for us, but don't be lazy about how you live. Don't just assume God will take care of everything and I can just live any way that I want. I can become apathetic or lazy. In fact, this whole section here, as Peter writes it, is a call to action. There's an inherent warning here. When you do that, don't be carefree. That is, that we go along thinking that all is well with the world and that we have no concern for the enemy of our souls. Though victory is won in Christ, the battle, Peter says, rages on. We are rightly called in the, in the gospel as well as in the writings of the apostles, soldiers of Jesus Christ, warriors, in a continuing battle that rages on all around us. And so you have these two ideas, two complementary thoughts. First, the victory indeed has been won in Christ. And out of that victory, he demonstrates his care for us by providing all that we have need of. In Colossians 2, Paul writes, he disarmed, that is Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And consider the words of our Savior in Matthew 16, after Peter makes his great confession about who Jesus is. 
Jesus says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gospel, the kingdom, is a forward-marching offensive that is moving through the world, God accomplishing his purposes, and the gates of hell, which stand opposed to it, shall not prevail. Why? Because God has triumphed over those enemies. That is a fact according to the scriptures. It was even realized as part of Jesus' own disciples when he sent them out to preach, and you remember their return, rejoicing and praising God. And Jesus told them that as they went to preach, he saw Satan falling from heaven, a description of the eventual victory of Christ over his enemy and ours. That is a glorious truth that Peter wants these readers to understand, that God has won the victory, and each one of us tonight ought to rest truly in that truth and to rejoice as we consider everything that the Lord has done for us in Christ. But it does not lead to apathy. It doesn't lead to laziness, spiritual laziness. It doesn't lead to a life that is not sober-minded. And therefore, he speaks in the verses that follow the way that he does. Be Nonetheless, as you cast your cares on God, as you realize, testing God, if you will, that he does indeed care for you, nonetheless, be sober-minded. Why? Because we have an adversary. The Bible refers to him as the enemy of our souls. He is a defeated foe. His victory is guaranteed not to happen. Jesus has already won the victory over uh, Satan and all of our enemies. But we need, as we live in this life, nonetheless, to be sober-minded. The text here in 1 Peter 5, of course, is very familiar to the one read in James 4, the passage we used as a call to worship. It's a passage uh, that is familiar. The part of it says this, "'Submit yourselves therefore to God.'" Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. What James emphasizes is that as we submit ourselves to God, for he opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble, then we can in his strength resist the devil. And he will, James says, flee from us. He cannot stand in the face of one who is resting in the finished work of Christ, resting and rejoicing in that work. He flees surely because we are in Christ and we are the victors because of what Christ has done. And so I'd like to look at this passage tonight under several headings, the first of which is to look at the nature of our adversary or the enemy of our souls, as Paul or Peter here describes him in verse 8, the adversary, the devil, who prowls around like a roaring lion. Peter warns his readers and us, that our enemy is our adversary, is the meaning of the Hebrew word Satan, one who stands opposed to us. He bears many names in the scriptures, the accuser of the brethren. He is a liar. He is a destroyer. He is a tempter. He's a wicked one. He is the God of this age. He is the one who stands against us at every point because we are united to Jesus Christ, and it is God, ultimately, that he hates. 
He is, Peter acknowledges in these verses, and the Bible bears it out, he is to be feared, if you will, because he is a formidable foe, not one that we can ever take on in our own strength. Even as Michael the archangel, as we studied in the book of Jude, did not speak a reviling accusation against Satan, but declared the Lord rebuke you, we must understand the ferociousness of our enemy. And so Peter uses several descriptive phrases. He speaks of him here as a roaring lion. Now, roaring is no doubt used here to describe his ferocity, his ferocity. You only have to have heard the roaring of a lion on a visit to a zoo. I didn't take a poll, but I'm not sure if anyone's ever been on a safari and heard a lion in the wild. I did on TV. But you have to hear it at a zoo. That's probably most of our experience to know that that roar is ferocious. It is a warning that the one who is roaring is a ferocious enemy. He's a lion, Peter says. Satan, we know, is a great imposter. He's not the original or an original at all. And so I think Peter's intent here is very purposeful. He uses a term that is most often used in the Bible about our Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation 5 the book of Amos pictures him as the true lion or the lion of the tribe of Judah. How interesting that Peter then describes Satan this way, pointing out that he is indeed a great imposter. And that, I think, becomes part of his wiles, his tactics against us, because he poses as the real thing. It's also a fitting description as we think of the term lion here and one used in the Old Testament as we think of how the Old Testament uses that picture of the enemies of God's people and even of his Christ. In Psalm 22, a messianic psalm, David writes, many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. That's the imagery here of the enemy here that Peter wants us to see and understand. It's also interesting, of course, in the context in which Peter writes, in which he lives, and in which the saints after him will live, that he uses an image which the church will come to associate with the ferocity of its enemies in the Roman Colosseum, where Christians would be taken and fed, if you will, to the lions. You may have heard this quote before. It's fairly famous, but Ignatius, one of the early church fathers, in referencing his own impending death, wrote this. Let me be given, he says, to the wild beasts, for through them I can attain unto God. I am God's wheat. I am ground by the teeth of wild beasts that I may be found pure bread. Come fire and cross and grapplings with wild beasts, wrenching of bones, hacking of limbs, crushings of my whole body. Come cruel tortures of the devil to assail me. Only be it mine to attain unto Jesus Christ. Now that's a picture, of course, in the face of such suffering, which he did endure in that very way. That is a picture of one who is resting in the victory 
won by Jesus Christ, but who is still sober-minded with respect to who the real enemy is. It is, as Peter uses it, a very fitting image of our enemy, the one who stands against us at every point. Peter refers to him here in these verses as one who is seeking whom he may devour. He's prowling about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Devour is a word that Peter uses that literally means to drink down and has obvious application, I think, to what took place at the Roman Colosseum. Suffice it to say that Peter here uses the term to describe again the ferocity of our enemy and his unwavering commitment to his cause, which is always to destroy the works of God because he hates God. That's the focus. He hates God and he hates God's people. As we read from Ephesians chapter 6, you heard some more about our enemy. Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities and against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Well, that's just a brief picture and understanding of Peter as he describes our enemy. What is our response to be then? And that gets to the heart of this passage, the call to be sober-minded. Uh, our response to the enemy, Peter says, is first of all to be sober-minded and watchful. Paul here, or Peter here, uses these terms to relate to what he's just described as our enemy. There are two main places we've noted in our study where this call to be sober-minded and watchful occur, and we've seen them both. First of all, it's as we await the coming of our Lord. That's why, that's the reason we're called to be sober-minded, because our minds are to be thinking with respect to the coming of Christ and the end of all things. Jesus taught this clearly in the parables of the coming kingdom, the ten virgins, etc. Peter spoke of it with respect to our prayers again, that as we consider the end of all things is at hand, be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Well, it's with view to the coming of Christ, but it's second time that we see it is here. It's a call to be watchmen on the towers. It's an Old Testament image. It's to be on the lookout for the enemy from far away to understand his schemes and his wiles. And so sober-mindedness carries with it this idea that we are always watchful. We're always looking for our enemy who seeks to attack us and ultimately to destroy us. James says to resist him. James and Peter both say to take a stand against him, but only in the power of God. And that's the meaning of Ephesians 6. It's all in the power of God. It's God's armor given to us that we are to take up and to put on. It is well-tested armor because it was used first by Jesus Christ, our Savior, who came in our likeness, who stood against our enemy in that armor described by Paul in 
Ephesians chapter 6, as he faced the enemy, he was clothed in that armor. What we wear is the second-hand, well-tested armor of our Savior, sure to stand as it did for him in the day of battle against the devil. Peter says, resist him. How do we do it? By standing firm, he says, in the faith. Notice what he says. Resist him, verse 9, firm in your faith, firm and confident in what God has done for you and for me in Jesus Christ. It's the same idea that Jude writes as he talks about the false teachers that have crept in unnoticed. Beloved, he says, I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, but I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people, animated, he's saying, animated by our enemy, who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. And so for Peter, for Paul, for all the writers of the scriptures, we stand firm against this great enemy. Our response is to stand firm in the power of his might, resting with confidence in that faith once for all delivered unto the saints. I think it's why John writes the way he does in 1 John chapter 5, when he talks about our victory that has overcome the world. He says it's our faith that has done that. Now, we know it's Christ who has overcome the world, but as our faith rests in Jesus, we have through him overcome it as well. Everyone, John writes, who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And so as we resist him, according to Peter, we resist him by standing firm in the faith. Standing firm, resting in what Christ has accomplished for us. Now, the rest of this, Peter is writing to these particular believers who are suffering, remembering those around the world who are also suffering. I think he makes wonderful points here, but it's for another purpose. But he does go on to talk about this suffering that we endure, this battle that we are engaged in, is the experience of everyone who is united to Jesus Christ. And so, he says, the same kind of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. That's a great encouragement to us. We're not alone. Remember the prophet who came to God and said, I'm the only one left. And God promised him that there were 7,000 that had not bowed the knee to Baal. That was an encouragement to the prophet that he would understand that he is not alone. And so when we suffer, we need to remember the tribulation and suffering of the saints all around the world that we're not ever alone. 
But God will be faithful, he says. He will be faithful, as you see at the end of this particular section, that the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore and confirm and strengthen and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. God will one day establish his people. He will one day destroy our enemy, the enemy of our souls. But until then, Peter calls us to this sober-mindedness. Three things, then, as we close out our time this evening. And the first one you already know because I promised it would be the same every time. Be ye, then, sober-minded. It's the reason I wanted to do this brief series is just to reiterate week after week of the importance of believers, those who love Christ, that we would be sober-minded, that we would be careful in the way we live in 2024, that we would see the world the way God sees it, and from the perspective of his heavenly throne, of his coming again in glory, and of the judgment that will be coming. That is what God did to us when he converted us, changed us, gave us a new way of thinking. It was that we would be sober-minded. And so the call and the reminder throughout this series is that you would be sober-minded. And I can't think of any more practical place to to this call of sober-mindedness than what Peter writes here regarding our great enemy. You must be, and I must be, sober-minded with an enemy like this. We have to be watchful. We have to be always ready, on our guard, as it were. It is stunning to me that, as we heard this morning, as Pastor Fisher led us in that study of 1 Timothy 6 and mentioned this, it, it is to me very stunning and striking that some of Paul's last words to his son in the faith were these very words, as for you, always be sober-minded. Always be sober-minded. You know, he uses the same word there that we're studying in First Peter. It's the same exact word from the same root. Only used seven times in the New Testament. You know, when people speak last words, we ought to pay attention. They usually are the words that reflect the most important thoughts, ideas, concerns that we have as human beings before we go home to be with the Lord. And Paul's to Timothy, his son in the faith, were simply this, be sober-minded. And so I'm not dying. These aren't my last words. But in this month of January, all I wanted to do is say to you, be sober-minded. Be clear thinking. Be watchful and careful in the way you live in 2024. Secondly, do not be ignorant of our common enemy. Don't be ignorant of his ways. Again, Pastor Fisher this morning, and I put this in this afternoon, he said we cannot afford to be naive about this. He was speaking about false teachers, which we'll speak about in a moment. But he's right. With respect to our enemy, the one who is the enemy of our souls, we cannot afford to be naive about this. We, we can't afford to just kind of ignore this part of the Christian life. We can't afford it. We would be foolish to do so. He's not literally, of course, prowling around. He's not in the streets of Mount Laurel, is he? Or Maple Shade or anywhere we live. 
We don't physically see him prowling around like a lion. If we did, that probably would be helpful. We would at least have some visual uh, appearance of him, but he, he's not physical, is he? He's a spiritual being created by God who rebelled against God and now is set on hating everything God does and destroying God's work wherever it is found. And we see that everywhere in our culture, the way in which he is destroying the work of God. But if he's not roaming around like a lion, Peter's not speaking literally, how does he do his work? Well, his work is done in the realm of ideas, emotions, the realm of the will, the realm of the spirit, the realm of the things we think about, what we give our attention to. Most of his work is done, as Pastor Fisher reminded us this morning, through the false teachers who are animated by him. They are his helpers. They are the devil's helpers, those who are false teachers. And their doctrines, the scripture says, are the doctrines of demons. We ought not to sell that short. We ought not to pull back from that. That's what the scriptures call them if they are indeed false teachers. They preach another gospel that is no gospel at all. That's how Satan works. And through those false teachings, he seeks to deceive us. He seeks to present something as true, which is really not. And by those false teachings, he leads many astray. As we've seen those places where there are false teachers today, it is amazing why God would allow this, but I am not God. He is, and he has his purpose. And perhaps it is, uh, I can't even say what it is, but it is not exalting to him or to his son. But those places where there are false teachers today, as we've been reminded, are full of people who are being led astray in the realm of ideas, what they think, what they understand. He also works in how he gets into the hearts and minds of people, even within the church, sowing discord within the body, discontentment. Peter emphasizes part of the devil's work in the time in which he was writing, which is how we ought to view suffering. He talks about suffering. He talks about how we ought to view it as Christians. And the devil talks about suffering in a different way. He deceives us. He says suffering is bad. False teaching again. If you're suffering, if you're ill, if you're sick, if you're poor, then something's wrong with you. You have no faith. You're not believing God. And so the health and wealth and prosperity gospel, which is no gospel at all, has been absolutely entrenched in our nation. And we are exporting it to every country around the world. When he paints sin to be the end of all things and pleasure, and that is what we should be looking at when he distorts the gospel, when he promotes legalism or licentiousness, any things that he does which are false and not in accordance with God's word, we ought not to be ignorant of his ways, to be ignorant of his wiles. 2 Corinthians 2.11, Paul writes, Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. For this reason, he says, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Now, he's talking there about reconciliation, about restoration, about resolving relational issues. And he says one of the ways Satan gets into the life of a church 
is to cause these divisions and this discontentment. He says, I've forgiven everyone in the presence of Christ in order that we would not be led astray, outwitted by Satan, nor ignorant of his designs. Perhaps one of the ways that Satan works, uh, perhaps not across the board in the church at large, but often individually, is in the wrestling of our own assurance and whether or not we truly belong to him. Satan comes as the accuser of the brethren. He comes to stand before us to remind us of our sins. Derek Thomas, I think, has captured this well in a brief passage that he wrote, and I'll read it here. This is helpful, I think. He says, we find ourselves as Christians at war with the devil because he is at war with us. As the adversary, the meaning of the term Satan, he hates God and everything God is doing. Since we were once his children, that is, children of Satan, and under his dominion, his rage boils now that we are delivered from that kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved son. The moment we believed, we were no longer his, and he is desperate to recapture us. He is desperate to recapture us. The fact is, he cannot snatch away those who are held in Jesus' grip. But how do we know that we are in Jesus' grip? The consistent answer of the New Testament is that we know through and not despite our perseverance. The electing purposes of God do not work themselves out above our heads, but through our persistent persevering in the ways of godliness, our pursuit of holiness. Satan or the devil has wiles or schemes and ploys that cause us, call us, cause us to falter and to halt our perseverance, to doubt. One of these is to speak evil against us, as the label devil, devil means slanderer, making us out to be worse than we think and therefore unworthy to be called Christians. This Satan does a great deal. And I love this, but he overplays his hand. As John Bunyan so brilliantly illustrates in The Pilgrim's Progress, there Apollyon, which means destroyer, another of his names, mockingly berates Christian for the tardiness of his profession of faith. In short, he says, you are a hypocrite, Christian. And Christian responds this way, and I love this. All of this, he says, is true and much more which you have left out. But the prince whom I serve and honor is merciful and ready to forgive. Besides these sins possessed me in your own country, and I have groaned under them, been sorry for them, and now have obtained pardon from my prince. We are much worse than we ever confess, but the gospel is for sinners. Christian get to know this wily ploy of Satan's and stand firm in the gospel. That leads that to that final point. Stand then firm. Stand firm in the faith. Please know that you cannot resist him on your own. You and I cannot resist him on our own. It is only as we stand and are found in Christ. It is always surprising, not surprising, striking to me, that as you read through Peter's letters, he never forgot the lessons that he himself learned. And you remember the lessons of Peter's life, don't you? 
You remember as Jesus was telling his disciples on that night that he would be taken by those who would come to claim his life. His spiritual eyes had been opened to this reality, but he forgot as he stood in Luke 22 and as Jesus reminded him, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. But Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you, both to prison and to death. You know the story. You know what happened. You know that Peter was standing in his own strength. You know that the only reason he was able to come at all to that repentance to which he came was because of what Jesus said. I prayed for you, Peter, that you might in turn strengthen your brother. So this brief series, as we begin the new year, simply serves for me to remind myself and you of what it means to follow the Lord Jesus Christ and that it is a serious matter. It requires a sober mind in a less than sober-minded world. Christianity is and always will be countercultural. As the Lord draws us savingly to Jesus Christ, we are placed on a road and a path that's going in the opposite direction of the world. We no longer think the way the world does. We no longer live the way the world does. We no longer love the things of the world. We no longer desire what the world desires. But the enemy of our souls is constantly trying to get us to do so, to welcome us back into his kingdom, to make us feel comfortable and at home in this world. To battle that, we have to be sober-minded. No shortcuts, no easy ways, no quick answers. As another writer said, he is after us. We have targets on our backs. As a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, his allies and weapons are many. Worldly culture, social media, material prosperity, false prophets who change the grace of God into lasciviousness. Be sober then and vigilant. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Rest assured that this roaring lion will not ultimately devour even one of God's children. We are safely kept. He cannot pluck us out of the Father's hands. But it is the Father's will that we battle against this devil, resisting him steadfast in the faith, confident of our victory in Christ. And that is what was going through Martin Luther's mind. And I'm so glad we sang the hymn this morning about Satan and his wiles. Though this world with devils filled, should threaten to undo us. We will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let then goods and kindred go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Be sober-minded as you enter and continue to live in this new year. Next Sunday, Lord willing, 
we'll return to our study in Romans. And we pick up where we left off in the beginning of chapter 5 with one of the clearest expressions, encouraging statements in the entire Bible. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Try as he may, Satan will never be able to change that reality, which is ours in Christ. Let us pray. Father, this world is indeed filled with devils. Satan and his cohorts are roaming about, seeking to attack and destroy all the work of God, seeking in our own lives to cause us to forget that faith once for all delivered unto the saints, to lead us not to solid ground, but to shaky ground in which we doubt your love. And so we pray that you would grant to us, by your grace, a sober-mindedness in this new year, that we might in all things, whether it be the pursuit of holiness or our own prayer life or even this watchfulness of our great enemy, Father, in all of these things, make us to be sober-minded, resting always in the knowledge of our victory in Jesus Christ that we might stand against the wiles of the enemy and the armor that you have given to us in him, and that we might stand firm in the day of our testing because of your grace, giving you thanks for this and all things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Our final hymn is a wonderful one. In fact, all three hymns were chosen because of their focus on this idea. This one, 567, rise my soul to watch and pray. Please stand as we sing these words together. <laughs> 